Nehemiah chapter 11 here. I'm not going to read it because we have a couple chapters and a lot of, um, a lot of lists and so forth. And um, it's hard enough to go through it once, let alone twice for me. Um, but this is a very powerful um, passage here. Nehemiah chapter 11, we begin here and just thinking about where we've come up to this point. I mean, it's amazing to see how far God has brought um, the nation of Israel, uh, Judah, and, and, and just where they've brought Nehemiah, where he's brought Nehemiah, where, how far they've come, and all these things. Last week we saw that they, um, actually before last week, it goes even further back in like, I don't remember, can't remember what chapter it was, but when Ezra read the word of God and, and they all read the word of God and there were people that were assisting peop- the, 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 the regular, um, not common folk, that's not a really good way to say it, but just, just the average person just to be able to help them understand the word of God. And then they responded as a result of that, wanting to obey him more. They made commitments to him. Uh, to obey him, to, to walk according to the word. Some of them had heard the word for the first time in their lives. Uh, they heard about the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrated that feast collectively as a, as a nation, the first time since coming into the land and under Joshua. And, and so we see, in, you know, last week, when after they've expressed all this thanksgiving, we saw the longest prayer in the Bible. It broke, kind of overflowed into two weeks of our studies, but they were just worshiping and responding to what God's done and recognizing their, their failures in the context of God's faithfulness because they said, you did this, and then we responded this way, and then we did this, and it wasn't good what they did, yet you did this, good, and it just shows God's faithfulness and God's grace over and over again, they just worshipped him. And then, they, and then we saw how God moved on them to be faithful with giving the first fruits of their, of their crops. And they supported um, the work of God through obeying how God had laid out for them to <clears throat> give and so forth. And so now in chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at chapter 12 as well, but we're going to be skipping through a lot of names and so forth um, He's going to show in chapter 11 kind of the commitment of the people to living in Jerusalem. It's about kind of their commitment to living in the city because there was a, they, all the people in Israel couldn't fit in within the walls there of the city of Jerusalem. Um, and so we're going to see them dedicate themselves to do that. And we're going to see them dedicate themselves to live in this great city. And we're, we're going to see them cast lots. And we're going to see that one out of ten people will dedicate themselves to living in the city. It's likely that they had that set up just because of how much the city would hold. And so they're going to make that commitment. Um, We need to recognize that he's already told us that their homes were in rubble. Many of their homes were were in rubble. And, And also, when you don't have a wall to protect you, of course, that contributes to that. Because you can get attacked at any time. And you're vulnerable and all of that. And then we're, we also saw as we studied through this book that they use some of the stones from people's houses to make the wall. And so, the, you know, they put the, the wall first because without a wall, it's very hard to have a house that's going to be stable because it's not going to survive the attacks of, from without. And so they saw that this is what, how God was leading them, what, where they were supposed to sacrifice and give out of their own houses to supply uh, you know, the materials for the wall, in addition to what uh, King Artaxerxes had already supplied. Now, today, if you go to Israel, you can see part of Nehemiah's wall. You can see part of kind of a house that's nearby, and you can kind of get an idea of what it, of what it looked like. But they sacrificed greatly to help have that wall be built. So we're also going to see another list We've seen these lists. These, there haven't been genealogies. It's just been lists of different things. We're going to see another one uh, this week. It's a names list. He's already given us, as I said, many lists. He's given them a list about, you know, related to who came back with Ezra and Nehemiah, um, or Zerubbabel, rather, who, a list of who worked on the wall, a list of who were, had dedicated themselves to obey God, and, and they signed their names and all of that. They made their pledge that they would live for him and all of that. And now we're going to see a list of, list of those who would move into the city as a, as a response to drawing lots, 
casting lots and all of that, they're going to recognize that they've been chosen and they're going to say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move inside the city walls and all of that. That's going to be my, my home and he's going to record this. Now, why does God record these lists? How many of you like lists? Are you a list person? You got lots of lists written down. That's how God is. He's very organized and he likes to record things. He's a very good uh, recorder of information. Matthew, remember before he was, you know, Matthew in the sense of the, the apostle, he, he was Levi and he worked for the equivalent of the IRS there. And he made good records, took good notes and all of that. He had to do that to do his job well. And it makes sense that when, when we studied through Matthew, that he's very careful to record all the things, including the genealogy. One of the, the two genealogies that's in the Gospels it was very good at that. But that's kind of what we see all through Scripture. God is very interested in recording things, not just for himself. It's not like he needs it, like he needs to remember. He's going to forget. That's why we make our list, right? That's not why God makes his list. He wants us to see. He wants to let us know that he, it's important enough to him to, to have his people and prophets and so forth record those things for posterity to see and all of that. And, and he's in, we, we're told about the, the Lamb's Book of Life. Again, another list. It's in a book. And it's a list of who has salvation. Who's the one that are going to be, um, you know, in heaven with him for eternity. But there's other lists too. We're told in Revelation, you may remember when we went through the book of Revelation, that it says that there are other books doesn't say what those are about or what's in those books and all of that. So he's very much into that. So he records, um, as we're going to see today, who has made the commitment to, in, to go into <clears throat> the city of Jerusalem and to make that their, their home. Now, verse 1 says, Now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. And nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So here they cast lots. And this was very common in their history. They would cast lots. And some people have taken the casting of lots as kind of like a validation of gambling. You know, it's like it's not, they're not gambling there when you talk about casting Lots there. It, it wasn't as if they were saying that casting of lots was separate from God and his sovereignty. They were believing that God led through the casting of lots. We're even told in scripture in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So they didn't disconnect casting of lots from from God. They didn't think it was luck. They didn't believe in luck. They didn't, you know, didn't believe in chance. They believe that God is sovereign over every decision and and so it was very common like in Joshua's time they cast lots related to where the people who would have what inheritance and all of that and so that may have seen at the time that that was just chance but in reality if you study it hundreds of years before that when when Jacob was giving his deathbed kind of proclamation of his sons and all of that all of those things lined up. When you look at how the, the, the lots were cast related to how the, city, the country was divided up into land, it all corresponds to what Jacob said in his deathbed about his sons. It's amazing. So God had prophesied that, but yet it appeared in the moment when they were doing that that it, it could have been seen by somebody that this was just chance, but God was sovereign over that. Now in the book of Acts, the very beginning, you see um, the leadership cast lots related to who would replace Judas. And some have, have basically criticized that, saying that, that, you know, that was something that they got ahead of the Lord. And, you know, that's all arguing from silence because it doesn't give anything negative about that. They quote scripture when they do it. Their desire is to please the Lord and through the whole thing. And people say, well, we never heard of Matthias ever again. Well, we never heard of Bartholomew ever again. Probably because it's so hard to say his name especially when you're up in front of people. But there's a lot of apostles that you never heard again uh, in the scriptures, but in history, church history, we see them very uh, much used by the Lord. So be very careful to not, to, to not speak where the scriptures don't speak. But one thing that is noteworthy is that after that, after Matthias, and later on the Holy Spirit refers to them as the 11, uh, which if he didn't accept that choice, he wouldn't have done that, uh, 
you know, after that, you see them, they don't cast lots ever again because of the baptism with the Holy Spirit and being led and all of that. And then that's why today it's not for us to cast lots and, and all those things because he said that he would lead us into all truth by his Spirit. Now notice in verse 2, the people offered themselves. Notice there it says, who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now, sometimes we see God's sovereignty and we see free will, but usually we see in the scriptures, if you really look for it, you usually see both at the same happening at the same time. Because both are true at the same time. And it's the pride of man that says, I demand to understand how God does that, how he's sovereign and yet honors free will all at the same time. But he never said that we were we were um, able to understand or he wants us to understand or he's called us to understand how he does that because he's infinite. Someone has said that sovereignty is one pillar and free will is another pillar and beyond the vanishing point, like as if there was a cloud, those pillars go up but then God puts a roof on them and connects them beyond our ability to see how he does it. And see, in this, these two verses, you see that they cast lots. Yeah, that's the sovereignty of God, but yet it still said the men were willingly offering themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. So they realized that God was sovereign, but they could have said no. They could have said, no, I'm not going to Jerusalem, but they were yielded to God and they offered that, that decision or to obey that decision uh, willingly. And it's a beautiful picture of, of kind of how everything works with sovereignty and the, and the free will of man. So he works his sovereignty through and be and beyond our free will all at the same time. And to me, it doesn't minimize the people that focus so much on the sovereignty of God. They think it cheapens God or makes him less sovereign as if that's possible um, to make him less sovereign that we have free will. But to me, it glorifies God even more that he can give us free will, but yet be sovereign all at the same time. So to me, it brings him more glory, not less glory. Continues in verse three. These are the heads of the province who dwell in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelled in his own possession in their cities, Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin, the children of Judah. And he goes on to say these names, and I want to skip down to verse 6. All the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And I want to note that, that they were valiant Men, they were brave men, and he records the number of them. That's how specific God is with recording what we need to remember and what's important to him, that they were valiant men, they were brave men. And he's going to list a bunch of different kinds of men and people, and he's going to number certain ones, and we'll kind of total it up and look at kind of the amount that we're talking about here. But he continues, um, look at verse 8 where he says, And after him... Gabai and Salai, 928. So he's giving more numbers, and he says, verse 9, Joel, the son of Nikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Senua, was second over the city. So there was order, and there was people that were overseeing the whole thing, and then there were people that were kind of assistants or second in command and all of that. Then he mentions the priests in verse 10. He says, of the priests, Jedidiah, the son of Jehorobib, easy to say, and Jachin, and Sarariah, the son of Hilkiah, and the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Moriath, the son of Ahitub, was the leader of the house of God. So there was order. There was those that oversaw the temple and those that oversaw the priests and all of that. He numbers them. And then goes, go down to verse 13. He says, And his brethren, heads of the father's houses, were 242. And Amashai, the son of Azrael, the son of Ahzai, the son of that person, the son of Immer, and their brethren, mighty men of valor. That's very important that we see that. Mighty men of valor. These are very brave men. Were 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. And then he notes the Levites in verse 15. Also the Levites, and he names them. And then he says in verse 16, um, Shabbatai and uh, Jazabad of the heads of the Levites had an oversight of the business outside of the house of God. So there was a lot of things that were happening outside the temple area, and those people, they had to have somewhere to live, and so he, he says these are the people that are going to be heads of the Levites. They had oversight over the other things because the Levites had oversight of not just inside the temple itself, but the area around it and all of that. So he names those people. 
And then notice in verse 17, he says, uh, in the middle of verse 17, the son of Asaph, the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer. Beautiful. Beautiful. He, Asaph, the leader who began the thanksgiving with prayer. It's great to start all thanksgiving with prayer. Verse 18, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. So that's how many Levites in the city itself. Moreover, the gatekeepers, and he lists them, and their brethren who kept the gates were 172. So if you add up all the different groups in this whole section here, we're going to see 468 men of Judah, 928 men of Benjamin, 1,192 priests, 284 Levites, 172 gatekeepers, so it totaled 3,044 men, and that's just a tenth of the people. So that if you were to look at the, the men, there was, that was a tenth, so there would be around 30,000 men that were living in Israel at the time, and so again, a tenth of them, that's not counting women and children and all of that. So that's, that's quite a reduction because in the wilderness there was millions of them. A couple million, two to three million Jews. So this was quite a bit after that, obviously. But their, their numbers had whittled down and then God would start rebuilding and, and they would start multiplying again. And by the, just about 500 years from this point, we're going to have quite a bit more that are going to be there. And we're going to see that in the, in, um, the ministry of Christ. Or that's what, what you see in the ministry of Christ is a lot more population. Verse 20. And the rest of Israel, the priests and Levites, were in all the cities of Judea, everyone in his inheritance. And then he says in verse 22, also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi. I don't know if their son made guns or whatever, but um, the son of Bani and the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mathenia, some of you just got that, the son of Micah, the sons of Asaph, the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. Singers in charge of the house of God? Yes, it's beautiful. God has always had such a huge priority on worship. We're going to see that all through here. It's beautiful. And, and sometimes we minimize certain parts of the body of Christ. I don't minimize singers at all. But worship, it was, now that's emblematic of just worshipers, basically, because it wasn't just the singers. It was, they had musicians and all of that. It was very important to God that they had those people set apart for this purpose. He, lays, he basically lays out their names and all of that of these singers, but they had responsibility. They were in charge of the service of the house of God. When you see priests in the Old Testament, you need to think worship. See, we think it's like religious ritual, priests and all of that, but it, it's reality. That's how they worshiped God. God had set up the priesthood so that man can approach God. Isn't that what worship is? And there was a certain prescribed way that God had planned for us to approach God before uh, Jesus came through the priesthood. And he had a very narrow way of, of that. They had to be set apart a very narrow, uh, in a very narrow fashion. And that we had to, you know, that's why I love Leviticus so much is it shows you just how narrow it was, uh, how God's prescribed everything so that we could come to God before the new covenant a very specific way. And when you offered strange fire, something bad happened. You know, um, you know he took out people that, um, that didn't worship according to how he had prescribed. It's a huge, huge responsibility there. Notice verse 23, he says, for it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers a quota day by day. Now, the king is Artaxerxes. They're still under that control. Nehemiah is the governor of, 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 of that area there. But still, the king is the one that's responsible. And he's arranged, I think it's more of like a probably a, a, um, you know, a good luck charm or, or you know, kind of hedging in the sense of, you know, I don't know what's true, but in case this is true, I'm going to have these people do this for me. So he set aside a certain quota for sustenance for them to help make it possible for them to do what they did, probably on the condition that they would offer some things up on his behalf um, there. So they received a quota day by day. And then he continues in verse 24, Pethahiah, the son of Meshazabal, and the children of Zerah, the, the son of Judah, was the king's deputy in all matters concerning the people. So there was, a, there was a, basically a go-between, even beyond Nehemiah, that represented the people to the, the king 
and the king to the people there. He was like a liaison there for the, the king and the people and all that so that the people can represent their points of view to him and he would carry those things over and to um, King Artaxerxes. Verse 25. And as for the villages, so he's getting specific now with villages, not just cities, not just people, but villages. As for the villages with their fields, some of the children of Judah dwelt in, and he names all these villages all the way down there, even to verse 30 where it says, and its fields. So he's going not just to villages, but the fields of the villages. That's how specific he's getting. And then he mentions the children of Benjamin, verse 31. Also the children of Benjamin from Geba dwelt in Mishmash. Wow, that's a, that's a city. How would you like to live in Mishmash? You know, the, uh, the Mishmash Police Department or whatever. It, just be, it would be weird. Um, Aijah and Bethel and their villages. And then look down at verse 36. Some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. So it's important that everybody had a place where they were to dwell there. And it's important that you know we have... All these people being in exactly where they were supposed to be. Remember, just under 500 years from this point, the Lord Jesus is going to be on the going to be born, and everybody's going to be in their specific places. And of course, we're talking God's sovereignty. We're talking everybody had to be exactly where they needed to be for this whole public ministry to occur, and all of that. You have uh, you know Joseph and Mary being from Bethlehem, but at the time they were, lived in Nazareth. And all of that, there was prophecy that was fulfilled and all of, all these families and all, I mean, all these relationships are all being set up to be in a certain place. So that he came, all the things that were supposed to happen and all the, his ministry and all of that would be fulfilled in a very specific way. So it may not seem on the, on the surface that all of this is all that significant, but when you think about just a few hundred years from this point and how significant it would be with the Messiah coming and his ministry, everyone being in their place is very important. This list is a list of those who would go willingly, as I said, and respond to God's choice. But they may not have originally had a desire to live in Jerusalem. Have you thought about that? Just the last few minutes. God, they they were drawn by lot, right? And then they were willing to go, but it doesn't say that they wanted to go. And, And that kind of speaks of our kind of our relationship with God and how he's called us to do certain things for him and our calling and all of that. And it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that everything he's called us to we're going to want to do at any given time I don't know if you've noticed that yourself there's parts about everything that are not as enjoyable as others that he's may called us to but the issue is we're going to submit and be in submission to what he's called us to do regardless if we understand it at the time see a lot of the this is um, analogous if that's that's the right word of of how people were called into ministry in the scriptures all through the scriptures God would approach them. He would initiate it. They wouldn't initiate it. God would approach them and say, this is what I have for you to do. Basically the equivalent of someone having their lot cast in that way of going to have to live in Jerusalem. And they had a choice at that time. They were going to respond to that calling in a positive way and obey what God's wanting them to do. Even if they can't picture it, they can't see how it's going to happen, they can't understand it, yet they still have to submit to it because they have to trust God that he knows what he's doing. And it's a beautiful picture of our, of our lives as believers because he calls us to certain things and we don't always understand it at the time. We don't for sure see how it's possible that he could use us to do it, but yet we step out in faith and we respond to what he's called us to do and then we see him supply all the things that's needed and most of the time we eventually see that we were made to do that and we were called to do it from the foundation of the world. So this is a beautiful thing. Now, we've already seen him record the names of gatekeepers. Why is that important? It's important because we could look at gatekeepers as potentially insignificant places in, in that whole arrangement, but it wasn't to God. He noticed it, and he recorded their names. You know, that'd be equivalent of our ushers or parking lot servants or whatever it is. We, you know, he sees everything. You know, think about when he called the 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 apostles in the uh, in the book of Acts in Acts chapter six, and he called them to help with these Grecian widows that were being neglected, 
And they said it's not profitable that we should wait on tables, but we need to remain you know, committed to the ministry of the word and, and prayer. And so they let that opportunity be known. And it was beautiful how, how all of it happened. And, and, and it was beyond their capacity to meet the needs and all of that. And God took care of it. It was, again, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, he spared the church from a great split at that point because it could have split the church in half. And so these, these deacons, as we like to call them, in Acts chapter 6, they waited on tables. We have elevated deacon to such a high position. People, oh, I'm a deacon in the church, you know, and I'm something great, you know, and all this. And, and they were just waiters. That's all they were. They weren't some great, huge, you know, uh, position to where everybody's like, ooh, and then awing about what they're doing. Um, but the requirements for that were that they were full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, men of character, and all of that. So the things that we would consider not that, you know, essential or important, he had high qualifications for that. See, the, the, you, know, I, you know, I teach in the School of Pastoral Ministry. I've been discipling men to be pastors for a long time. And one of the things that I go over when I go over the qualifications for an overseer is all those things are character-based in Titus and Timothy, except one, which is a gift of teaching. They're not education-based. There's no education requirement. Uh, unfortunately, we see that in a lot of other places where that's the biggest priority. And we need to understand what we're teaching, of course. But no one usually gets hurt by people because they wrote a theology book. They get hurt because they have a lack of character. So God puts this high premium on these character attributes. But one of the things that I've heard people say and often comes up in class is he holds overseers to a higher standard. And that's why he has that list and everything. And he wants basically leaders to live at a higher level and all. And I don't agree with any of that. I think what he's telling Timothy and Titus, he's telling them to verify that these men that, are, that they're going to appoint to be pastors or leaders live at the level that he's called every man to live at. Go look at those lists and try to see if there's something that he hasn't called every man to live like. He's just saying verify that they're a godly man. That's all he's saying. He's not saying that they're called to live higher than everybody else. That's a complete misnomer and not from the scriptures. So, so I think that the issue is for these people, he notices these gatekeepers. He notices all the things that we would say maybe are, aren't as significant. And that should be an encouragement to us, those of us that are working a little bit behind the scenes or not in front of people and all of that. Because as we see in 1 Corinthians 12 and all these other places, one part of the body can't look at the other part and say you're not important. And he switches it in the same passage and say, you can't say about yourself that you're not important. Because there's two different ways we battle with that. We look at other people and say that they're not important. We look at, and this is usually most of the time, we look at ourselves and say, what we're doing isn't important. And he's saying it's all equally important, just like every part of the body is important as the rest of it. Our earlobe, you know, yeah, you're mean to it sometimes, you pierce it. You know, but our earlobe is just as important as our brains or as our tongue or whatever. It all has to work completely and have complete synergy and work uh, perfectly together. So I love the fact that he highlights these gatekeepers and these people that man, apart from God, would just overlook and say it's not a big deal. He says it is a big deal. They're important. They're faithful. And they're, they made this commitment to go into Jerusalem just like all the other people. Now, in chapter 12, the first 26 verses takes us through the rest of the names, which we'll kind of skip through and go over like we've done. But then on verse 27 and onward to the end of the chapter 12 is where they're really basically dedicating and celebrating the city. And they're dedicating the city to the Lord and, and all of that. So in chapter 12, he names in the beginning, now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. And then he lists them. And then in verse 8, he says, moreover, the Levites were, and he lists all of them. And then he skips down to the head of the father's houses in verse 12. He says, now in the days of Jehoiakim, the priests, the heads of the father's houses were, so he lists all of them. And then he go down to verse 22. We're told, during the reign of Darius the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been heads of their father's houses in the days of Elishib, Johida, Jonanan, and Jeduah, the sons of Levi, the heads of the father's houses, until the days of Johanan, the son of Elishahib, were, were written in the book of the Chronicles. And that's important because we know about First and Second Chronicles. And there are other times in the scriptures where it says, 
aren't the rest of these people named in the book of Chronicles and all of that. So Chronicles is a very important book um, as well. And then he knows he lists David in verse 24. He's, the heads of the Levites were, and he lists some names there, with their brothers across from them to praise and give thanks, group all, um, alternating with group according to the command of David, the man of God. Beautiful. Now, we're going to see him mention David, I think, six times. Um, we're going to see in the rest of this chapter name David. It's kind of strange. We're, this has been a long, long time since David's been on the scene and all of that. And, and he's talking about these, you know, these people that are worshipers and these, these um, people that are giving their lives to the Lord and surrender and all of that. And he's been talking about singers and all these things. And, and David, you know, David was a man of war. That's why he wasn't allowed to build a temple, we're told in Scripture. But he did everything but build the temple. He got everything ready for his son to do that. But he was also, of course, as we know, a king. And he was a prophet in, that, in, in another sense. But I believe that what David wanted above anything, if he could get a choice in the matter. Again, we're talking about God's calling and not necessarily having exactly everything that we would want in terms of our calling. You know, David, I believe, wanted to be a priest. You know, when he laid on his deathbed in 2 Samuel 23, at the end of his life, he was kind of signing off and he refers to himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Psalms were God's hymn book for the Jews. It was their song book. We go through it and we teach it and we go through verse by verse, but really it's just lyrics to songs. And he gives the specific you know, um, instructions related to how to play this song with certain instruments and all of that. And there's, there's the whole Selah part of it where he wants them to pause and meditate on that last verse or that last idea and all of that. It's, it's, a, it's a book of worship. And he wrote so many of the Psalms. And, and I believe that if he would have given, been given a choice, he probably would have been a priest to be continually given to the worship of God. That's just his heart. And he, he, didn't, he couldn't do it. He wasn't called to be a priest. Again, you can't do everything that you want to do. But he, but he did write all these Psalms that were used by God's people, and we still use them today, to be able to worship God and to, to lead. So he's leading God's people in worship still. Even in the New Covenant, because of the Psalms that were written and, and all that, it's beautiful just to see him named there, because he did set up the Levites a certain way, according to the command of David, we're told there at the end of verse 24. And then uh, verse 25, he still named some names that watched over the storerooms and the gates. Verse 26, they lived in the days of um, Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of uh, Jozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe. So we've come all the way now down to 26, and now we're going to come to the part that we're going to spend a little bit more time on uh, related to the dedication of the city. It's a beautiful picture. We're told that there's the, you know, the, they're singing eight times, there's thanksgiving mentioned six times, there's rejoicing mentioned seven times, instruments are mentioned three times, and it's beautiful because that's how God wants to have us celebrate his faithfulness is, is worship. And be able to sing to him and be able to live our lives as pleasing to him as worship and all of that. And so they're dedicating with great joy. And most of the revivals that you see in history had a very, they had a very strong prayer component to them. They're always preceded by much prayer. But also during the Welch revival, like all these different revivals, worship was such a strong part of it. And singing to the Lord was such a strong part of it you know sometimes in our circles in Calvary Chapel sometimes you'll hear that the worship the one of the main purposes of worship is to prepare people's hearts for the word of God and I believe that that does happen but I don't believe that's the main purpose at all I believe the main purpose is to worship God I may maybe call me crazy but the main purpose is for people to worship God in song and to give him the praise and the honor that he is so due it's not preparatory. That's not the main point. It does have that effect on us at times. But we could have the teaching first and the worship after. And, and God would be just as blessed and we'd receive God's word probably just as well because our hearts need to be prepared, generally speaking, anyway, apart from before we even get here to receive God's word. We definitely, in our hearts, have to be submitted to him and want his word even before we even celebrate together um, corporately. Let's look at verse 27. 
Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate. Notice that word celebrate. To celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgivings and singing, with cymbals, Tony says amen, and stringed instruments, Dave says amen, and harps. Who's going to say amen to harps? Harps are okay. We've got amens for harps, too. Harps are great. You're not going to be playing one necessarily above a cloud, you know. I mean, we don't, we don't know. We'll see. But um, you'll like them, <laughs> if, if, you know, if, if that's what you're called to, to do in heaven. But what a picture of celebration. We don't see a subdued, you know, quiet, you know, reserved type thing here. I mean, there's a place for that. Scriptures tell us to be, to be still and know that he is God. There's a time for a joyful noise. A lot of us know from how we sing that that's what it is. It's a noise. But um, what God hears, it's beautiful to him. It's, he doesn't necessarily care what we sound like when he hears it. We care <laughs> how we hear it, uh, but he doesn't necessarily care about that. But it's a beautiful picture. This is a picture of celebration. God, God loves to celebrate, to have us celebrate him. And to focus on him and to rejoice and to be full of joy. That's what the rest of this is going to be talking about. Verse 28. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem. So all the singers gathered around from the villages there. Um, Verse 29. And the house of Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Think about that. You know, one thing about singers is that that's what they do all the time if they're a singer they like to sing you'll hear them all the time singing you know I hear my wife singing all the time through the house I it's a it's I love it I love when I hear anybody sing and all of that and can you imagine just these villages that are around the city of Jerusalem there and that's where they live and just think about how those neighborhoods and those those little villages and all of that, how they would have that beautiful sound going out of the singers, you know, singing and worshiping to the Lord all the time. It's, it's a beautiful picture of God's, um, how he sets people in certain places. Verse 30, then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And so we don't know if that was with blood. It probably was with blood, and they purified and all of that. That was the, the way that they would do that. But... Um, they would have done this just to dedicate them to the Lord. This is, this is basically saying you're set apart. This city is set apart. Everything about it is set apart. And it's a beautiful picture of us because we are set apart. Do you know that you are not any less set apart than any of those priests were? Any of the, anyone that God's ever called in Scripture? You know, he said that John the Baptist, that we, in the, the least in the kingdom of God, is greater than, than John the Baptist, which is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets we are royalty we are called a royal priesthood a holy nation we are citizens of heaven our citizenship is in heaven we're told we are royalty and and so he we have been set apart the same way so then notice the first person speaking in verse 31 so i that's nehemiah i brought the leaders of judah up on the wall up on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. Woohoo! One went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuge, refuse gate. So we we're told that Ezra led that group. Um, he headed south, kind of counterclockwise on the, on the wall. And then in verse 38, we're told Nehemiah led another group the other direction. And they went the other, they went clockwise there. And so they headed north. And this is a beautiful picture because the people, the gates, the walls, they're all been set apart with, with the, because of the priests and all of that. And then they form these two large, I just want to emphasize that again, two large Thanksgiving choirs. They're marching on the wall, going different directions, and they're going to meet up right to go into the temple, in the temple area there, and, and it's going to bring God glory. Now, I just want you to see the picture for a moment. This is a picture of total victory. This is a picture of total, just them just completely having victory over this whole thing that they've gone through. Remember, there was warfare. Does anyone remember uh, these uh, Sambala and Tobiah? Who are those guys? They're still around. But where are they? Where are their opinions right now? Nowhere. 
You know, I, I think I remember the mockery and the threats and the use of fear and the use of compromise, the use of trying to get Nehemiah to go into the temple, which was forbidden, to get him to, to sin and all of that. I think I remember Tobiah saying, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And now they have two large Thanksgiving choirs marching on the wall, going around to meet up to celebrate in the temple area. Total victory. See, that's what we have to remember is that there's an end to our race. There's a point at which we're going to stand before the Lord Jesus and give an account for our lives at the judgment seat of Christ. And he's going to lavish upon us rewards for things that Honestly, we really had nothing to do with. He set us up, he, you know, these divine appointments. He gave us his spirit. He convicted them by his spirit. He gave us his word to preach to them. And his, he gave us his love to love people with. And all these things. And then he just lavishes upon us complete rewards for us. It's just an unbelievable picture of his grace. But one of the things we won't be remembering at that time is all of the difficulty and all of the battles and the discouragement and the enemy and the fear and the, and the casting doubt and the self-doubt and all those things, we won't think about that at that time. We're going to stand before him in that just brilliant light that outshone the Middle Eastern sun when Paul encountered him. And we're going to have a new body that can take that glory and be, be able to stand in his presence. And we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Aren't you ready for that? I am ready for that. I am ready to hear that. I want to hear that from him. There's more than a fox up on that wall, and it's not breaking down. It's a complete victory. These two large Thanksgiving choirs are marching in victory on that wall. And I want to highlight just for a moment, just to bring your attention to the fact of how God is enjoying this scene. We're so self-focused and so hard to picture that at times. But I want you to think about, if you're a parent here, how you have pictured or how you have enjoyed your child. You know, we just dedicate little Elijah to the Lord. And there'll come a point in time where Elijah's riding a bike for the first time, or walking. I don't know if he's walking yet. But when they walk for the first time, you're in, you're, what's going on in the heart of a parent? When they're riding their bike for the first time. Remember when Audrey rode her bike for the first time? Unbelievable feeling. Or when they overcome some kind of adversity, or they get an award, or they graduate from high school. So any of those things. We're walking, I don't want to think about walking down the aisle yet. I'm not ready to go there in my mind. But, you know, holding a child for the first time. We held our child for the first time. Or we, you know, seeing our grandkids, or our children hold our grandkids for the first time. Those are moments, those are snapshots that just give us a little peek into the heart of God and how he enjoys when we have victory and we overcome through adversity. Because it matters to him. He enjoys that more than we could ever imagine. So when we, you know, um, choose to believe his word instead of ungodly counsel, he sees it and it blesses him. We act upon what his word says instead of what our emotions or what the world says we should do or believe that he's honored by that. It blesses his heart. When we obey the Great Commission, lead someone to Christ for the first time. When we treat our spouse the way that they should be treated in a biblical way, and we haven't been doing that, we have victory over that, he, he notices and it blesses him. When we start to serve people, when we start being an example for our kids and we start leading them spiritually and taking responsibility that we're the primary discipler in the home, not our, the Sunday school teacher. And we take ownership of that. And we lead them in family devotions. We've never done that before. Huge victory. Huge celebration. Huge for, for when, how God is seeing that and it's blessing his heart. He watches us with the heart of love all the way from beginning to end. And he re rejoices when we rejoice. He weeps when we weep. He cares about when we have victory and all of that. And we're going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. We're in a race. It's a struggle, yes. But he is faithful. And just like Jesus had us in his vision, we were the joy that was set before him where he endured the cross. We, we are looking to Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. We're lo locked on to him because he's our example. It's beautiful. Verse 32. After them went um, Hashashiah and the half of the leaders of Judah. And then I want to focus on verse 36. says that, and his brethren, it names those people with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Again, he mentions David again. 
Because David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. David is someone that was an example of a worshiper and all of that. And David made specific things, laid out specific things for them, made these instruments or laid out the plans for these instruments that, and so forth. And so they honored that, they honored these people. And Ezra went before them. And then verse 38, go down there, it says, The other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way, so I mentioned earlier, led by Nehemiah. And I was behind them with half the people on the wall. So you picture it, the other Thanksgiving choir is going the other direction on the wall. And Nehemiah is behind, and he's watching them march ahead of, of him. And you can imagine just him thinking about, wow, look at how faithful has God been through, through all of this. And, and you can imagine the families that were, as they're standing there, because not, not everyone's part of the choir, of course. And, and so they're standing there by their homes, and this choir's going by, marching on the wall, and they would see the point um, over, that the, the choir went over where they, their, their family worked on that wall. And they were working hard and sacrificing and being focused and not letting the enemy distract them and all of that. You, you can imagine just how that must have felt to them, knowing that they had a part to play in this whole work of God. It's beautiful because everything worked together. Everyone worked uh, in concert. Verse 40. So the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and the half of the rulers with me and the priests, and he names them. Um, And then it says in verse 42, the singers sang loudly. Don't you love that? The singers sound loudly. This was saying loudly. This is their... They are aggressively worshiping God, aggressively just not holding anything back. I love how he notes here how they express their hearts to the full. Don't ever let anything stop you from worshiping and letting everything go. We have grown so much as a church related to worship. It's unbelievable. I mean, I travel at times. I go to other churches, and whether they're Calvary chapels or not, there's times where Everybody's just looking around at each other. No one's engaged, no, you know, in general. And, and it's not like that here. We're growing in our worship. We're growing our, in our expression of that worship. It's beautiful. Verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. And I want to stop there because did God take over their wills and make them robots at that time and force them to? No. He's saying that this is because of God. God's the one that worked in such a way that he's the one that was the originator of all that caused them to worship. So he's saying that they rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Rejoice with great joy. How can you say it anymore? How can you explain joy any more than that? That they rejoiced with great joy and the the women and the children also rejoiced. It wasn't just the men. Can you imagine that? How come you guys get to go on and do all that? We're here in the house with the kids and everything. We're dealing with all this stuff. No, they, they, they were part of the whole thing too. They rejoiced greatly as well. And then it says at the end of verse 43, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Do you remember Whoville? <laughs> do you remember the words? That, I don't even know what those words were, but... You just, I just picture that, where they're just all around that tree, and they're all holding hands and all that, and they're, I think the Grinch was with them eventually, right? And, they're, and they're, they're singing and all that, and that sound just goes louder and louder outside, further out, further out. And, and you know, according to my weird brain, of course, that's what I'm, what I'm thinking, some cartoon, of course. But they're singing so loudly that it says that their joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. You know who heard it? Sambalad and Tobiah. All the critics, all the ones that aren't listed here that gossiped against them and said they're never going to do anything. I agree with what they say about this fox getting on the wall and it's just going to crumble. And, you know, all those people that were the enemies, they heard all that singing. And as we live our lives according to how we should live them, we live a life of worship. We live a life that's different than everywhere else, how the world lives and all of that it carries over and people see that there's something different about us because you know that they were asking, what's going on in Jerusalem there? And what was going on is they were celebrating God's faithfulness and so our lives should as, as well. We have so much to rejoice over, church. We do. We have so much to be thankful for. Again, like I said, during thanks, before Thanksgiving, I said every day is Thanksgiving for the believer and it's true. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus that we give thanks continually, we're told in Scripture. We're called to give thanks consistently and and, um, regularly. 
Now, in verses 44 through 47, we're almost done here, we see more order and being set apart. Look at verse 47, or 44, rather. And at the time, the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithe to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions specified by the law, so they're following God's word, for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. They rejoiced over those. You know, I rejoice over those who serve in our church and the worship team and everybody. I rejoice over all of you, um, just like they did. Verse 45, both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David and, and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers. So they were singer overseers there and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah all Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers a portion for each day they also consecrated holy things for the Levites and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron so they did everything orderly appropriately how they were supposed to they followed through with their commitments They had said that they were going to obey the Lord and live for him and all of that and live according to his word. That's what we see in those verses. We see them following through with their commitment, with obedience, as we should as well. So we'll stop there. We're called to be living sacrifices. We're called to have our lives represent worship. We're called to have our lives be victorious. That's what he's made us. He's made us more than conquerors. And he's called us to be filled with his joy. And who's thinking of our victory more than our, the ourselves? Him. When we have victory, he's enjoying it more than we're enjoying it. And it matters to him. He sees every little decision we make, everything, every sin that we say no to by his grace, by his spirit. He sees that. It, it blesses his heart. And he loves every single time we're victorious. He loves to see it. Just like we love to see our kids be victorious and enjoy Um, doing the things that they're supposed to be able to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the example that we have in our heritage of men and women that were committed to you, surrendered to you, and wanted to honor you with your choice of them being called to live in that city. And I thank you, Lord. Help us to, to all be submitted to where you have us serving where you've called us to lord we recognize your sovereignty we recognize that you are sovereign over those things help us to listen to your holy spirit and be yielded to how you want to lead our lives lord for your glory we'll go wherever you want us to go lord by your grace and by your power we thank you in jesus name amen